1 Samuel 30. This is God's word to us this afternoon. Let's give our attention to it. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and daughters were taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake, and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men. Two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid against the Negev, of the Cherimnites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negeb of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued His two wives, nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything 
that had been taken, David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays with the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negeb, in Hatir, in Aror, in Ziphmoth, in Estemoa, in Rakal, in the cities of the Hiramelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Atnach, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord's day, this day that you have given to us. For the word proclaimed this morning, we thank you for it. And now we ask that you would attend to your word once again this afternoon. Instruct us in the faith. Point us to Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we left off last week with David being dismissed by King Achish from the battle between the Philistines and Israel. And after marching for three very long days to return back home to Ziklag, as you recall last week, David and his men are faced with the worst nightmare possible. Their homes were burned to the ground and their wives and their children are gone. Absolutely everything that was precious or important to them has become lost. Like a brick in deep water, sorrow hits these men so hard. They wept until they couldn't weep any longer. In fact, the pain of loss was so agonizing that the men considered taking their frustration out upon David. They considered stoning him to death. As you know, when you're hurt so deeply, it can be so easy to take your frustration out on others. Well, initially things seem pretty bleak. But as we ended off last week, we saw 
David strengthening himself. He strengthened himself in the Lord. He did so by inquiring of the Lord. And the Lord graciously responded to David. Like a ray of sunshine in the dark cloud, the Lord told David that he would succeed. That he would rescue those that were lost. The Lord said, you will overtake. You will rescue. Now this green light from the Lord hardly makes the road ahead easy. For remember all that is facing David and his men at this point. You see, they are already very tired. They are weary from their journey. And add to the fact that they have now emotionally worn themselves out for weeping for their loss. Also, David and his men do not know who the invading parties are. As you know, the narrator has told us who it is. But David doesn't know this fact yet. And they don't know where to go or where to find them. And so there are these, there's a lot of desert raiders out there, brothers and sisters. And he doesn't know that it's the Amalekites. All he knows so far is that he needs to trek these outlaws. And where do they have to go but to a desert wasteland? You can just hear some of the men as they're starting to trek the footprints of the raiders We have to track them into that, into that area. This is hopeless. This is like finding a needle in a haystack. Now, the Lord has given them this promise of success, but note that he didn't tell them how they would succeed. David has a destination. David does have an outcome, but he has no idea how he is going to get there. David and his men, they're exhausted and their morale is hanging on by a thread. Now, it doesn't take long for this thread to begin to fray just a little bit more. For once they are on the road, they come to the brook of Bezor. Now, from what we know, this is about 15 miles away from Ziklag. So think about that for a minute, okay? A 15-mile run A hard run at that, it's about a third of the men are going to get lost here. And they can't take another step. They are done. They're utterly exhausted. And this is no good. Think about this with me. For one, David's men, these are men. They're sturdy. These are his fighting men. These are well-trained, highly skilled men. These men, to be exhausted then, should, to, should indicate to us just how dire the situation really is. It means that the other 400 that press on are on the verge of being just as tired. Secondly, losing 200 fighters cuts David's force by a third. Now, 600 is already not a large force, but to reduce it now to 400, well, providence is not making things easy for David. Now, he has the word of the Lord, but that doesn't mean that he's not going to have to really work for this thing. Well, off goes the 400 into the scorching heat of the desert. 
And finally, they catch a break. They catch a break in the search in a place so desolate that you're lucky to spot a lizard. They find this lone traveler there. Lying in the open sand is an Egyptian lying unconscious, and he is near dead. In fact, this dude is so bad off, they need to feed him and water him several times before he's even well enough to to talk, to speak. And it's no wonder, for he hasn't had any food, according to our text, for three days. In the desert, three days, no food or water. All right? Just to give you guys, let's, let's bring ourselves into the narrative here. This man was so bad off he couldn't go to the shade. He just collapsed in the open sun. And it gets just a tad worse. This Egyptian is an Amalekite slave. And the guy falls sick while traveling from the raid. Got to think about this with me. His master abandons him right in the desert. Your slave gets sick and you refuse to spend any time or any resources to make him better. These Amalekites didn't have time for such nonsense like bringing their slave back. They're a pretty hardcore group, aren't they? And my point is this, that this makes us mindful of the fact that the wives and children of David and his men are with this group in captivity, this particular hardcore group. Now, once they get the Egyptian slave revived, Providence does smile upon David. In a place where there is not a soul to be found, David just happens to find the one man that he needs. This Egyptian was the Amalekite, was with the Amalekites, When they made the raid, this is just the information that David needs. For David learns that it was the Amalekites that raided and burned Ziklag. And they didn't just ponder Ziklag. They they went throughout all the southern area of both Philistine area and Judah. Thus, these Amalekites are loaded down now with a bunch of loot the whole area they have raided. Well, this is exactly the type of intelligence David needed to know. And so David asked this Egyptian slave if he would take him to this Amalekite hideout. You know, if you're a good desert raider, you need a secret place. You need a lair. You need a cave to lay low. Well, the Egyptian slave here says, sure, but only on one condition. Note the middle of verse 15 with me. He says, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. This Egyptian pleads that his life be spared. Even more so, as we just read, he said, Hey, just don't give me back over to this Egyptian, excuse me, to this Amalekite master, this Amalekite lord. Anything is better than being under him. And so once again, we have the testimony of an Egyptian to show just how bad the Amalekites are. Well, David makes the agreement with the Egyptian. This is an easy one, make no mistake. And so the Egyptian leads David to the Amalekites' secret den. 
And as David peers over the valley, he can hardly believe what he sees. This is no small batch, no small band of Amalekites. He's hit the mother load. They cover the valley floor from one end to the other. And what are they doing? Well, for those of us that have a couple gray hairs, they're partying like it's 1999. They have so much plunder that they're eating and drinking and they're partying like it's no tomorrow. The very master that wouldn't lift a finger to help this sick Egyptian is now gorging himself on food and drink and they're dancing. The spoil is so great that it is spread across the land like pebbles. Of course, This does work to David's advantage. What does David do? Well, he strategically waits until twilight. That is just before dawn, early in the morning. David strategically times his attack during the times of headaches and hangovers. And then he pounces like a lion on unexpected prey. David. And his 400 men fight from dawn until dusk. Note verse 17 with me. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. The Lord grants David and his men success, just like he promised. And with the exception of 400 young men on camels who fled, not a man escaped. And once again, we see David practicing the principle of total destruction against God's enemies. Now, obviously, there is an exception in our text here. We do see 400 men guide away on camels, but this wasn't really David's fault. Rather, this is just due to the chaos of battle. I want to take a pause, and I really want you to think about If 400 got away, how many were there? I mean, you got to really, I want you to get into your mind just the, the amount of Amalekites that they would have had to fight against. And yet it was the Lord that delivered them. Now let's take a moment. I want to remind ourselves of this destruction principle. It is at this point that we recall that Saul failed. Back in chapter 28, Samuel told Saul that for not destroying the Amalekites, that he failed The Lord, listen to this, it it literally, it says this, the Lord's furious, or depending on your translation, or fierce wrath in 28. The Lord's furious or fierce wrath. Now, this is a highly significant phrase. Performing the total destruction of this particular kind of holy war is a display of God's furious wrath. So how is this the case? We've talked about this before several months ago. You may recall that the total destruction principle foreshadowed the final day of judgment, the coming of the Lord for the unredeemed. 
It is the breaking into history of the Lord's severe justice and his wrath against unrepentant sinners. This shows us that we all deserve for our sins, if we're outside of Christ, this very thing. And it is what the Lord, it is what the Lord placed on the Amalekites under this curse. I want to remind you why, because of the way they attacked Israel way back in Exodus chapter 17. So through Saul, the Lord had handed this duty to the king to perform righteousness, for him to perform justice. He had to wipe out. He was commanded by God to wipe him out. But as you recall, Saul thought he had superior wisdom over the Lord. He thought better and he rescued rescued the king of the Amalekites. He saved the best you know, the, the, the good portions for himself and the people. And then, of course, he blamed it on the people. And he was judged accordingly. Well, as you recall, once again, Saul refused to do this and he failed. But where he failed, David, David has succeeded. Yes, 400 did slip away like a pesky weed. Those Amalekites aren't so easy to eradicate. But as far as he was able, David was able to perform the Lord's fury, the Lord's wrath. He performed the role of the righteous king. He thought God's thoughts after him. He was zealous for the holiness of the Lord. As God is zealous for his own holy name. This then is David being a man after God's own heart. Not just to show mercy, but to perform righteousness in the form of wrath. Now, destruction here is not the main focus, and I want to make sure that we understand this. In fact, if, if I was to title this, if this was like a, a sermon message, I, I would say, uh, victory of the king brings many spoils of his people. Note our narrative in 18 through 20. This is where it just gets so beautiful. The main focus really of the text is here in verses 18 through 20. And as I read it, I want you to look at how many different ways the narrator describes David recovering what was taken. Look at it with me. 18 through 20. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back some. David brought back all. You guys are asleep. I caught you. It's after lunch. I get it. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, listen, this this declaration, this is David's spoil. 
As we just read, the text focuses in on several ways that David recovered all that was taken. He got his wives back. Nothing was missing, not small nor great. David brought it all back, is this declaration. Imagine what a relief this would have been for David's men. For the past handful of days or so, David and his men thought everything was gone. Everything is lost. It appeared that all was lost, that it was irrecoverable. But now David, in the role of the up-and-coming king, the anointed one of the Lord, he restores everything. The men, think about this. I get excited. The men get to hug and kiss their wives and their children again, the ones they thought they, they lost. They get to play catch with their sons and they get to play house with their daughters. They got all their stuff back. Through David, the Lord shows himself, listen to me, and this is an important feature, and we're going we're to play this out in a minute. Through David, the Lord shows himself to be the restorer of his people. Even more so, brothers and sisters, he didn't just get back the principle. They got it back with interest. Yes, even 50, 100 fold. Think about this. All that extra spoil that the, the Amalekites were feasting upon, they got that as well. In fact, the spoil was so great that the men paraded it back in a victory procession, a victory parade Take a moment. I'm going to play this out. It's in the end, right there in verse 20. What would this procession have looked like in, in, in the ancient Near East, in particular for Israel? Well, out in front for Israel, the pure animals would have been there. So think like sheep and cows and such. And behind them would have been the common animals like the donkeys and the camels. And then... Behind that would have walked the families and the wagons of loot. And as the journey, as they journeyed back home, what took place? The men cried out in, in a hymn of praise. This is the spoil of David. We can marvel at this great victory. This is amazing. David and 400 Routed this innumerable horde of the Amalekites, David restored all that was lost, and he captured a great spoil. An image of a victorious king returning home with the spoils of war was common in the ancient Near East. And we have this picture before us right here. And here we see David cast in this image. Now, when they reached the brook of Bazor, where they left off the 200 men, we encounter just a little bit of a speed bump. There is a bump in the road here. Okay, Some of David, David's men, in fact, the text tells us, some of David's worthless men, well, they're just not in the mood to share. Every one of you have one of those kids in your family. You know that one. And in this case, they're not in the mood to share. They don't want those wimps who couldn't press on to get a thing. Yes, they can have their wives and they can have their kids, but no more. 
The worthless fellows, I don't know if you noticed it in the text, they even demand that the 200 leave. Look at this scene with me in verse 22. Let's just go ahead and read it. Verse 22. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children. And it says this, And depart. And depart. These worthless men say, Here are your families. Now get out of here. They essentially say, You're not worthy to be a part of David's covenant community any longer. So go somewhere else. Now, brothers and sisters, this is harsh. Now, David's not going to have any part of this, and he quickly nips it in the bud. He even says, Who will listen to you guys? Instead, David calls the 200 men his brothers. David gives all the credit where it belongs. He didn't take it for himself. The credit belongs to whom? The Lord. The Lord for the victory. It was the Lord that gave the victory. The Lord had kept him safe. And the spoils came from the Lord's hands. And so David makes a statute here. Those who fight and those who stay with the baggage divide the spoil equally. Everyone gets an equal share. Now, how much time do I got? This is important, so we're going to have to take a minute. This could sound unfair. Shouldn't the spoil of war be based upon your performance, you military guys? You know, shouldn't wages be proportionate to your labor? Well, this principle is actually based in Numbers chapter 31, in, in particular 25, I think, to like 30 to 54. In short, what was received was to be based upon covenant inheritance, meaning that, that everything was to be divided equally. And this, this is a beautiful picture of David bringing the people of God into a portion of their covenant inheritance. Remember this, and this is the key part here. The people inherit through the king. The people inherit through the king, and because of the king, they will all have their fair share. Well, the picture of David as a victorious king is not quite finished for us this afternoon. When David reaches Ziklag, he has so much spoil, he shows generosity by giving gifts to men. He loads up wagons and he sends the spoils, listen to this, to 13 towns in Judah. Each town receives a gift with a card. Look at verse 26 with me. When David came to Ziklag, he sent a part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil, and listen to this, of the enemies of the Lord. Imagine answering your front door with this massive gift left at your doorstep. Now, there's something very remarkable about this act. Brothers and sisters, what do all of these cities have in common? Well, they are all a part of Judah, and they're all where David roamed. And I want to ask you, I want to remind you, what, what did David encounter 
when he roamed this area. What was he looking for? He was looking for refuge. Did he receive it? No. He got rejection and persecution. Yes, these are the towns that did not want David. They gave him no shelter. Some of them even ratted him out to Saul. They are the reason that David fled to the Philistines. Because no one in Judah would help him. But now, does David take revenge? No. He gives gifts. Abundant gifts. He gives them what they did not deserve. deserve. He holds no grudge. We could say it this way. David forgives before they even ask for it. And he shares the riches of his victory with those that deserve none. Well, with this, the I is dotted and the T is crossed for you and I to see our King, to see Christ. In fact, what a beautiful picture we have before us this afternoon of what Christ has won for you in victory. For how did David enter into his battle? When he entered in the battle, he entered weak and thirsty. Like that Egyptian, death was nipping at at his heels as well. His men, as you recall, were reduced down to 400 against this uncountable herd of the Amalekites. So also Jesus went into his ordeal weak and weary. After a sleepless night and beaten to a pulp by soldiers, Jesus carried his cross outside the city. Indeed, the glory of David's victory is not found in the strength of his army, brothers and sisters, but in its weakness. Not in great numbers, but in few. So also the glory of Christ is revealed in the weakness of the cross. Christ's enthronement. Christ's enthronement is not upon a beautiful golden throne, but rather upon a splintering, cursed tree. Likewise, Jesus marched into battle as the restorer of God's people. He came to reclaim that which you and I lost. But Jesus restored it back to us by losing everything. Scripture tells us, he who was rich became poor so that you might be rich in him. David lost everything, but David lost everything unwillingly. Christ, he gave it up all, willingly. In Philippians, it talks about He emptied himself. Now make no mistake, Christ did not empty himself of any divine attribute. What did he empty himself of? His station in glory with the Father. I love that we talked about the Trinity today. But he humbled himself and he took on an added nature, flesh. And he did so willingly. He entered into the covenant with the Father 
to pay for a people. We could say it this way. A king for a kingdom purchased with a price, with his blood. David went to execute God's wrath upon sinners. But Christ came to bear that same wrath. And he did so, listen to me, in his own body. Yes, the king must perform the Lord's holy wrath. That is a must. It is a matter of justice. It is a matter of righteousness. And so Jesus took upon himself this wrath. And he did so so that you and I could be spared. For left to ourselves, brothers and sisters, we had the fate of the Amalekites upon us. We were the cursed ones. We were the ones devoted to destruction. But our king came after us, and he paid the price we could never have paid. Jesus came to save us from such a fate. Yes, by losing everything, Jesus became the restorer of your fortunes. If you think about it, in certain points of Scripture, we get glimpses of just how much we lost in Adam. In the fall, we lost original righteousness. We lost holiness. Can we even begin to put such a price on such a treasure? Peace with God was gone. Life with God lost Fellowship with God in man in paradise, a forgotten memory. In Adam, sin and death entered this world, but in Christ, righteousness and life is restored. In Christ, the lost treasures are found. Reconciliation, peace, holiness. Yes, what you lost in Adam, you gain in Christ. And I want to remind you this morning, well, this afternoon, all of grace. You received it, His work, all of grace. And yet, what is clear from David's victory, he did not just reclaim what was lost, but he gained so much more. And Christ doesn't just take us back to Eden. If Christ was to take us just back to paradise lost, think about this, we would still have to obey in order to have life. And my point is this, that Christ doesn't return to you original righteousness. That's lost forever. Rather, He gives you something better. His proven righteousness His perfect righteousness, His active and passive obedience. Christ takes us to heaven, to Zion, not Eden. To to life everlasting where sin and death are no longer a possibility for God's people. And so Christ doesn't give you another perishable body, brothers and sisters, He gives you the imperishable body body of the resurrection. What man had in Adam 
prior to the fall was absolutely good. Make no mistake. God said so. It was good. But what we have been given in Christ is so much better. And this is why the scripture tells us that the resurrection is the restoration for you. Not just in things lost in Adam, but what we also lose in life. Can we begin to understand the things we lost in Adam? Think about this just for a moment. We're going to close soon. Brothers and sisters, under the common curse, there's still a lot to lose. Especially through death. And I'm talking about right now. Car wrecks, cancer, crime, careless accidents. These things take and they take and they take. There are many of us that have lost children and fathers and loved ones. And we are reminded on a daily basis of the fall. Persecution, injustices against the saints of God by this world. The punishing of the righteous by the wicked. But I want to remind you something that includes restitution, and it's this complete and utter restoration. And the only true restoration for death is what? Is resurrection. Yes, this is how Christ comforts you amidst the loss of life even now. For he who ascended on high, it says this, gave gifts to men, even to those that once rejected him. Even you, when you were in your sin. Yes, he who is rich became poor, and he lost everything everything so that you might gain everything in him. Even the sweet riches of drying your last tear. And so this afternoon, be comforted. Be comforted in Christ and His resurrection. For He is your King who rescued you. And He restores you to our triune God. He keeps you safe until the time of restoration of all things. Your very resurrection into a new heaven and a new earth. Then God's kingdom will come forth in glory. And then all will be to the honor and glory of our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And so may we live for His glory. And may we come to honor Him. And may we cry on a regular basis, Maranatha, come quickly.